Listen for a word today from Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. We're reading from the New Living Translation. O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why now are you trying to become perfect in your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in in his sight because of their faith. God proclaims this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, Cursed is everyone who dares not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right by God, with God, by keeping the law. For the scriptures say, It is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. The Word of God. Do you know what this is? Does this look familiar to you? Or is there one of these in your home? This is probably 40 or 50 years old. It belonged to my mother, and it's made like nobody's business. Those product engineers of the last century, they knew what they were doing. Do you know what this is used for? Yeah, it shakes a little bit. It rattles at the handle. There's one screw there. We could take care of that. But that shaking actually was useful for my mom. This pot came to its black color naturally. It started on the inside of the house on the electric burner, but then it moved to the motorhome. And this pot went with us every time the motorhome went out camping. So this black exterior... It comes from the Coleman stove, the Coleman stove at campsites up and down the Oregon coast. Not once or twice during the summer, but about every other weekend we camped. We were occasional participants in church during the summer months. Those were my backslidden years when I was eight years old. This is my mother's popcorn pan. It's petite, but it's proficient in producing gallons of popcorn if necessary. And my mom has this method, the right amount of kernels and the right amount of oil and the right amount of shaking, and she can get 10, 12 cups of popcorn out of one little kettle. Get the popcorn. It's the metaphor that came to my mind as I thought about Galatians 3 today. Seriously, get the popcorn. That's slang today. We understand that, right? It's probably the most popular gift get the popcorn, which means this is going to get real. There's going to be a way with words, a war with words. Let's just sit back and watch it go down. Get the popcorn. This is a more positive metaphor I can think of after sitting with Galatians 3 for a few weeks now because we've turned a corner. We're in the thick of it with Apostle Paul. We're in what they call the meaty middle, the dense, thick section, the theology, the doctrinal part. I mean, doesn't that make us so eager to want to read it? Paul, he's now going to lay out his case to the Galatian teachers. Remember, we don't have a copy of their argument, the protest against Paul's teaching. 
We have to guess then by the way Paul lays out his thoughts. He starts out sarcastic, snarky even. Are you under a spell? Remember, the letter to the Galatians began that way. What were you thinking? Well, Paul has that tone back. Are you under a spell? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the rules of Moses? You didn't. Did you receive the Spirit because you, you received it, because you trusted the message you heard about Christ? How foolish are you being right now? You started the journey with the Spirit, and then somehow you asked the Spirit to leave because, what, you're an expert in this new way of living? You've become an expert? All right, let's look at Abraham, Paul says. Paul turns to the life of Abraham. Why? Why does he need to reach all the way back to Israel's patriarch? Isn't there a more contemporary example he could see by looking around in real time? The Galatians teachers are likely using Abraham as their example to influence the new converts. They've issued a formal challenge, and they've done it with Scripture. So Paul turns to Scripture too. The Galatian teachers, they've probably, they've probably gone to Genesis chapter 17. Now, remember a few weeks ago when we were concerned that Paul was throwing tradition away? Well, not today. Not so. We can see here that Paul leans in because, and the argument is not too difficult to follow. Give me five minutes. Galatians 3, verse 6. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time right now where we live, the Apostle Paul says, when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing. Who are the children of God? Those who trust that God will be faithful to God's word. And that could have been enough. But Paul now moves to this rapid-fire proof-texting mode. I've got a text for you. I've got another one and another one. There are nine references now to, Old Test- to the Old Testament in seven verses. Paul quotes Genesis and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Habakkuk. Habakkuk? <laughs> Why? Because the teachers in Galatia are suggesting that God demands something that Paul is avoiding. Paul hasn't told you the whole truth. To be born free of Abraham, to free, be a freeborn of Abraham, there's a lot you need to do. There's circumcision and calendars and seasons, festival days. There's the entire Torah, the five, first five books of the Bible. Paul's been withholding scripture from you. There's a lot in there. Paul's watering it down. So Paul goes there. He goes to scripture to make his point. He's not abandoning it. He's interpreting it. He's interpreting it for his own purposes, by the way. We should drop a pin in that and come back to it another time. The teachers of Galatia go to Genesis 17 to talk about Abraham, which emphasizes circumcision but never mentions trust or faith. So Paul goes to Genesis 15, which mentions trust and faith but never names circumcision. But Paul can't leave it there. It would be a draw. If he's going to play their game, he's going to have to play their game. I mean, get the popcorn. Here it comes. Be careful when we play this game, church. Adventist Christians, we've come to our proof-texting reflex through the Apostle Paul. Don't blame it on the early Adventists. Don't blame it on the Protestants. All we have to do is look at Paul and be careful how we do this. Just this week, I'm reading Psalms 91 being quoted by Adventist Christians. Take shelter in the refuge of the Lord who will protect us from the pestilence of the land. And that if we read Psalm 91 and claim God's promises, none of us will be infected with a virus. Be very careful how we read scripture. Paul, Paul in Galatians 3, to get where he wants to go in his argument, 
He has to quote the Greek source of these texts, the Septuagint, not the Hebrew texts. Some scholars say that right here, his argument only makes sense if it's based on the Greek translation. Rapid fire proof texts, take one, take one, take one. Here we go, here we go, here we go. The blessing promised to Abraham is now available through Christ. God's children will live this out through trust, not the law. This is the summary of all the rapid fire proof texts. The crucified Christ took the curse of the law for all. Why not simply say it this way? Why the blitz of texts? I want to think about Paul the human being. I want to think about Paul and his world for a moment this morning. Not so different from ours. Paul, who also has a crowded and an angry world, a world that negotiated and renegotiated power between Rome and the Jewish elites and power that flows down. There are deep divisions on display every level. What's at stake? What's at stake for the Apostle Paul right now? Well, okay, his ego. What else? What about his vocational credibility? What about his relationships with the people? What about his emotional well-being? Maybe Paul has to meet them at their level of the argument, or he will lose credibility. He's a traveling scholar. He doesn't have access to a library or biblical or other kinds of texts. Whatever he has learned and kept in his memory, this is what he has. One of my mentors kept strings of Bible texts, formulas in the back of his Bible, cheat sheets for how to prove certain doctrines from Scripture. You need to, you need to prove creation from the Bible? Here are your lists of texts. What about the Sabbath? Here are your lists of texts. You need to teach someone about the state of the dead? Here are your lists of texts. I knew someone else who did the very same thing in case they were traveling and were ever asked to preach a sermon or give a devotional. Here are all the texts that will help me weave my way through the margins of the Bible to deliver a sermon. This one leads to that one and that one to the next one. Paul doesn't have a trail of notes he can follow in the margins of a Bible. He's one step removed from all of this, let alone a device he can carry in his hand, right? He's likely memorized sequences of citations on certain subjects. He can mix and match things orally. He's been educated, an exceptional education in the synagogue at Tarsus, and that's prepared this intelligent youth to be an apologist now for Judaism and to argue against the pagans in, in the city of well-educated people. So Paul transitions all those skills now to this new focus, Christ, Christ. Sometimes we need to stay in the thick of it because the outcome is critical. Maybe Paul needs to stay in the thick of it right now with the Galatian teachers because the outcome is critical. Thank you, scholars, those who gave, those of you who are giving your skills to the church, those of you who can read the Septuagint along with Paul and tell us if his argument is cogent. Thank you for staying with this. Sometimes we need to stay in the thick of it. The gospel we teach shapes the church we create. The church we create shapes the gospel we teach. I say that often because I'm convicted of that truth. Sometimes we need to stay in the thick of it because a bad version of the gospel does damage. Tony Campolo, Brian McLaren, they wrote that book a few years ago, I think in 2006, Adventures and Missing the Point. What happens when we have a bad version of the gospel? We could fill the Sabbath afternoon with stories of what's happened when we've missed the point. You have family members. I have family members who have been victims of a bad version of the gospel. Maybe Paul needs to stay in the thick of it to be certain that we don't spread a bad version of the gospel. We're saved by the gospel, liberated by the gospel, freed by the gospel, but then sometimes we reach for functional saviors. 
like control or approval or comfort or socially constructed norms. Timothy Keller calls these functional saviors. We're saved by the gospel, but we turn the gospel into a bad version of the gospel. Adventism does this sometimes. We're saved by the gospel, but we reach for the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping is probably at the top of our list of functional saviors. We're not saved by the Sabbath. We may be saved for the Sabbath, We'll probably talk about that in upcoming weeks. Some days, church, we need to stay in the thick of it, settle in for the difficult conversations, keep our Bibles open, check with one another for healthy conversations and interpretations. This is what we're doing on Tuesday nights, by, by the way. Join us. There's room for many more Tuesday night at the text. Rapid-fire proof texting is not the methodology we're using, by the way. Some would critique the Apostle Paul for part of what he's doing here. I'm not going to spend time on that just now. I only want to name that he likely stays in the thick of it for the sake of the gospel. Adventist Christians have valued this cognitive work, this mind work, this intellectual work, and some have wondered, have we been too much in our heads, too much intellectual work, too much cognitive work, or is that intellectual work actually good for something in the world God so loves? See, right underneath the surface in Galatia is a messy reality that they aren't really talking about. Maybe it's the stuff whispered in the street cafes or in homes after dark. Paul claims to be with the guy who died on a cross, a dead god who started a movement that has no headquarters and no track record and no financial backers. How absurd is this? Galatians? Galatians, have, they have options. There's at least imperial Romanism with a track record, traditional Judaism, now this new Pauline Christianity led by a guy crucified on a cross. Ask yourself, what makes more sense? What's believable here? What would make your mama proud? Are you going to call home and say you're going with a dead guy on a cross as your God? There's a cultural pull in Galatia. It, if you're sympathetic to God and you want to know how to become part of God's movement or fully belong as a child of God, makes more sense to convert to Judaism. It's theologically solid. It's socially, well, at least, at least they have a country and a tradition and a home and a history with the Romans. But the guy on the cross... In Christ, God is entering humanity, the Apostle Paul says. It's an invasive act of rescue and liberation. God is building a new multi-ethnic family, learning to love God and others. And that love is modeled in the life of Jesus. And that love is embodied by a crucified Jesus on a cross. We're with the guy on the cross. How's that working out for the Apostle Paul and those early Christians? Because the rumors are pretty rough. The rumors are that they drink infant blood and that they have unusual, weird sexual habits and that they might engage in cannibalism and they're attracting far too many illiterate and poor and women and children. The early rumors of the Christ cult are brutal. Here's what's thought to be the first picture of a drawing of the crucified Christ. It's called the uh, Aleximanos Graffiti. It's drawn around the year 200 A.D., so it's another 100, 150 years after the Apostle Paul is moving around the regions talking about a dead god on a cross. This graffiti hangs in a museum in Rome. It's found in the imperial complex, the Roman palace, maybe the hallways of the training quarters for the servants of Caesar's household. Not in a public space, then in a shared space with many of the palace workers. Notice the Greek boy or a young man, and it's a caricature then of someone on a cross that's low to the ground. The body on the cross is a human, but with a donkey's head, the head of an ass. 
Alexmenos worships his god, the inscription says. Crucifixion is rarely portrayed in art before the 6th century. This is likely the earliest representation of crucifixion of Jesus. And it's a caricature, it's a mockery. Someone being ridiculed or bullied among the working class of the palace is someone being exposed or shamed because they're with the guy on the cross. A God who dies on a cross is sheer absurdity, church, and anybody with street smarts would know it. What a foolish religion, what weak people you are that you worship a dead man on a cross. To die with Christ is the only life I know, the Apostle Paul taught. We read it last week, Galatians 2, verse 19. For though through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul doesn't say he's resurrected with Jesus. He says, I've been crucified. Where Paul says, I've crucified and died with Christ, John, the author of the fourth gospel, might say, be born again. Or Jesus might say, come and follow me. Paul says, be crucified with Christ. This deserves so much reflection. The crucified life, the cruciformed shaped life is what one pastor calls this. We talked about that several years ago here at the church in a sermon series. What does the cruciformed shaped life look like? Absolutely, this is an identity battle in Galatians. Pastor Vadim named it last week. Our entire identity, my entire identity is with Christ. For Jesus, this means touching the skin of lepers and standing in the temple chasing out the leaders teaching a bad version of the gospel. It's prioritizing the poor and the hungry and the women and the children. It's about this ridiculous idea of eating at a table with no seating assignments and serving baskets of leftovers. For Jesus, it's stopping the bleeding and the beatings in the street. Jesus has a vision of God's kingdom that clashes with the kingdom of this earth. And for this, he's crucified, for bringing God's kingdom close to the people. So Jesus is offering this spiritual transformation that shapes us into new people. Jesus is the Lord of this life, not only the Savior of the next. It'll be a lifetime of asking what the crucified Christ would have me do today. We've been standing in front of artwork here by Crystal Chavez, and when she read Galatians, we asked her to reflect and draw us something that we could be looking at for these weeks. What you've been taking in from Crystal, here's a brief description. She says when she read Galatians, she noticed transformation as a theme. I wanted an image that represented this change from rigid separation to a fluid togetherness. So the brick wall that begins on this left-hand side with the individual colors, that starts out organized, but slowly they separate from their color groups, and then they're transformed into shapes that intermingle and eventually blend and overlap, fully losing separation. And they come together to create a single image, a single identity. I was looking for something that would show total transformation. So church, are we too cerebral? Have we been too cerebral and intellectual in our efforts? Have we placed our energy in the wrong place? It's good to do a gut check this week between our faith and our world. Is all of our careful intellectual work good for something here? Is this transformation good for something now? We're prepared to argue with the best of them, but are we prepared to serve as the least of them? Does our intellectual work take us closer to the people? Does it put us in the streets where people bleed? 
The number one topic in our country this week is the children of America returning to school and what will be required for that to happen. I don't need to have school-aged children in my house to see that there's a crisis, a crisis for parents who actually need to leave their home to, to earn money to pay their bills, but children who need to stay home so they'll be safe. I don't need children in my home to see the crisis, that there's a digital divide, that not every home has technology, that not every uh, home has internet or devices. I don't need to leave my home to see that there's a crisis between parents who need to stay home and actually get their work done and watch their children do their work. I'm listening to stories of people who are working between the hours at home, working between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. so they can get their own work done and continue to earn their pay while we wait for vaccines. This crisis, what, what good are our Christians in the middle of the biggest questions in America this week. What good might we be? There's still a food crisis for these children. Kids will still need their food if, and their meals if they need to stay home. There are still food deserts in our homes. Does our intellectual and cerebral work move us closer to the needs in our world? The pastors talked about this very need this week from our own children and families at La Sierra Academy to the Alvord School District to Riverside School, all of the schools in Riverside. What is it we could be doing to make sure the children in our neighborhood can study and study well this fall? If that's something you're excited about, we're not sure exactly how to actualize that energy, but we think that these are the things the crucified Christ would care about. We hope we can make donations for the to the digital divide. We can make maybe donations to connect Wi-Fi in homes or find homes where there's still a food desert. If you're interested in this topic, please contact one of the pastors. It's going to need help from church members to make this work. Do a gut check with your faith in the world this week. And when I do, I realize that some of the questions I've been taught to ask make no sense. Am I good enough? Am I obedient enough? Am I compliant enough? Am I pleasing enough? Am I safe enough for God to save? Am I enough of enough? These questions make so no sense. The Apostle Paul has been so clear. We are God's. And God, through Jesus, has come to our rescue, is coming to our rescue, will come to our rescue. Good, obedient, compliant, these are not conditions of God's rescue. This is difficult for me to understand because I have terms in my relationships. I understand that. I set terms. I need this from you to be at peace. I need that from you to be happy. We do this, but God does not. God is rescuing us, all of us. No turning back. Now what is my response? What are my fresh responsibilities and obligations knowing my identity is with the crucified Christ? Christ.